cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on Quant Finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk.net. Today, we talk about FX market making and we do that with Alexander Bazikin, Sasha for friends, Director of the FX and Commodities Desk at HSBC in London, and uh, Olivier Guillon, who is Professor of Applied Mathematics at the University of Paris 1. Uh, Sasha, Olivier, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Mauro. Uh, with your co-author, Philippe Bergon of the University of Paris Dauphin, uh, you just wrote and published a paper, which is now online on Risk.net uh, under the cutting edge section. It's titled Dealing with Multi-Currency Inventory Risk in Foreign Exchange Cash Markets. Uh, it's the extension of another work of yours published last year in August, also on Risk.net, in which you presented the market making model for effects that model currency pairs. Uh, in this new paper, you made a leap forward, say, uh, from the currency pairs uh, to uh, a look from a portfolio level instead. Um, to start talking about this, uh, should we uh, start by explaining what problem uh, you're addressing with this research and uh, um, yeah, over the, these two papers that you just published? Sasha, yeah. could, you, could you take this one? Yeah, like, uh, let me start from industry perspective. We address, um, as you mentioned, Mara, we address a very important practical problem of institutional market making in foreign exchange. Uh, FX is um, the largest financial market with a complex structure, but uh, very importantly, it uh, combines a significant over-the-counter or OTC, dealer-to-client segment, as well as an interbank um, market segment. This combination makes FX unique and uh, requires a special consideration. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about these two segments because uh, models with these two segments are not commonplace in the literature. So in most models of market making, uh, I mean, in the literature, in the academic literature at least, uh, market makers, they only set quotes and somehow wait for clients to trade with them. So there is flow uncertainty, they face inventory risk and they skew their quotes to manage this risk. That's in existing papers. Uh, and uh, I wrote papers with only this, for instance, in the past. But in our two papers, the two papers you mentioned, uh, we built models in which, uh, of course, market makers skew their quotes, but they can also unwind in the interbank, seg in the interbank segment of the market. Yeah. So we have the D2D, dealer to dealer segment, and D2C, dealer to client segment. Yeah, exactly. And uh, trading in the open market offers certainty of execution, and which is very important for risk management. But it also comes with a uh, transaction cost and uh, market impact, understandably, because a larger community uh, sees your trades. Uh, our model provides a framework for optimal risk management under these conditions. The first paper uh, was devoted to detailed uh, consideration of a single instrument case, as you, Mara, mentioned, and the second one extends to a portfolio of currency pairs. Yep, uh, we will see those uh, in details in, in a minute. But I think before going into uh, into those details, uh, probably it's uh, worth uh, recapping what uh, what are the main concepts at play here, uh, to just for the sake of clarity. 
So could you could you explain what uh, inventory risk is and uh, what levers bank have to manage it? Yeah, of course. Uh, if I want to talk about inventory risk, maybe I should rewind a bit and talk about what dealers are are doing. So a dealer or a market maker proposes prices to clients at which uh, he or she is ready to buy or sell assets. In our case, uh, we are talking about currency pairs. So. Uh, they trade at these prices, at the prices they propose when clients are coming, but clients seldom or in fact never come, uh, never trade at the same time. So uh, dealers will have inventory to manage. And of course, this inventory is risky as is any position in volatile instruments. So uh, this is why we talk about uh, inventory risk. And uh, how to you said how to manage, but in fact, there are two ways we can talk about internalization and externalization to, to, to reduce the risk, to reduce this inventory risk. Uh, so as I said, market makers, they can skew prices to attract clients at the bid or at the ask. To give an example, if they are long, of course, they want to attract buyers. And uh, if they are short, they, they want to attract sellers. So they are going to skew their quotes and uh, if they keep the risk, they, they warehouse the risk in some sense, uh, they wait until uh, an offsetting flow arrives. But they can also do something different. Uh, well, the first case I mentioned is called internalization. But instead, when market makers unwind risk externally uh, in the interval market, we call that externalization. So we have the two segments we mentioned, and so two ways to manage this risk in some sense. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we were talking about this uh, in the previous paper. In particular, we were focused on this uh, dilemma of internalization mm -hmm. versus internalization. And th this dilemma was indeed discussed in uh, in the literature uh, as well. And it's actively discussed in, in the industry. And uh, propensity to externalize depend uh, on risk tolerance. And of course, it depends on franchise mm -hmm. size. I mean, how fast you actually can upset your flow. The larger the risk and uh, the less likely one can expect the upsetting flow, the more likely a market maker will uh, externalize. A uh, large institution will internalize uh, the majority of their flow and uh, at least 80% in G10 currencies as um, uh, according to Bank of International Settlement re uh, Review, last one we have seen. Uh, more internalization means uh, less market footprint. Uh, what uh, should be a better outcome for a client? And normally, who takes this decision? Is it up to the trader or is it uh, a risk management uh, decision? Uh, I mean, uh, to decide whether to internalize or externalize. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what we suggest, of course, we provide the model we, which makes the, uh, this decision. Mm -hmm. uh, optimally, with optimal controls, that uh, the outcome of the model is optimal controls. And one of those optimal controls is uh, execution rate of the external market, uh, given by, uh, um, driven by the market conditions and the uh, franchise properties and the risk measurement. Uh, I would say uh, risk tolerance is, uh, can be decided by the desk. I mean, how tolerant you are to yeah. your inventory risk. But otherwise, it's a product of optimization. And if I can add something, uh, it, there is something we've proved, in fact, in the uh, in the I think in the first paper and in the, the second paper as well. Uh, it's the existence of what we call uh, we coined 
like we coined a, a name for it. We call that the pure flow internalization area. It means there exists a threshold of inventory below which it is optimal for the dealer not to externalize. Okay, mm. so somehow there is a uh, the, the, yeah there is a threshold, and below that threshold we keep inventory inside uh, inside the the company inside the bank. The dealer keeps the inventory, and if it's if we reach the threshold, then we externalize. And of course, the models uh, are answering the question: How fast should we externalize? But I think it's important to to talk about this thing. Uh, there is a threshold. And uh, of course, we studied the determinants of the threshold mm -hmm. in the paper. I see. So let's go and uh, discuss about well, first the the paper that you published last year on uh, the currency pairs. Uh, how did that model work, and uh, what, what did you introduce in that paper? Uh, we have used a stochastic optimal uh, control framework, essentially merging uh, no TC market making model, a la Avalaneda Stoikov. And on which Olivier actually had worked uh, quite a lot in the past, and an optimal uh, execution model of Almgren and Chris to describe hedging in the interbank market. In addition, we have um, analyzed the typical client flow signatures uh, that could be observed in, in, in the market and introduced different trading sizes and tiers, essentially making it a very practical model uh, and not just uh, theoretical. It, this model allows us to, uh, I will emphasize again, to set optimal uh, pricing ladders for different clients and determine uh, optimal hedging rate as functions of the inventory, uh, a function of risk aversion, and uh, of course, market-driven parameters. I, I had worked a, a lot in the past on this Avalanche-Stoikov uh, paper. Uh, in fact, we proposed some solution to the equation with uh, some co-authors, uh, I think in 2000, I don't want to be wrong, 2013 maybe. Uh, yeah, I think so. I have your book here, so we can... Uh... <laughs> Self-advertising. Thank you, Sasha. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, so 2013 with uh, Charles-Albert Leal and Joaquin Fernandez Tapia. And then I, with other co-authors, we proposed some, uh, some models uh, that were related more to other OTC markets like corporate bonds. Uh, and in fact, it was more general. It was not focused to any uh, specific markets. And here, this first paper was really focused on specificities and the second even more of uh, the FX market. And that's the, really what we did. Yeah. Interesting. So, and then from there, you... Um you went to a multi-currency uh, portfolio view uh, model uh, with the one that you just published uh, last week. Uh, can you describe what is the difference, uh, what this one can uh, allow you to do, and uh, uh, what was, uh, yeah, how it works in practice? And yeah, yeah, let me start again from industrial perspective. Yeah, institutional, uh, of course, institutional effects uh, market making is naturally multi-currency um, uh, market making. So it's a very natural way way to go. I would say that models of OTC market making in multiple instruments uh, have been available. And again, o Olivier is uh, one of those pioneers who solved uh, those problems. But again, FX is special. 
And we have already discussed interbank uh, trading or externalization as one of very, very important components that were not previously discussed in uh, market make, OTC market making literature. Another important feature is multiple valuations. Say an equity is a bond portfolio is usually uh, valued in a single currency, but in effect, it's actually each currency pair is valuation of one currency in terms uh, of the other. And in addition, uh, we must say that so-called crosses or non-used dollar currency pairs can be very liquid and uh, provide alternative liquidity pathways and with them uh, all those uh, opportunities and of course challenges. Uh, for example, when you buy a Euro GBP, it is equivalent to buying Euro USD and selling uh, GBP USD, right? So our multi-currency model employs um, basically the same uh, stochastic optimal control framework, just at the portfolio level. Uh, I say it is uh, so simple, but in fact, this, of course, it's not simple at all. Uh, but uh, the solution is, uh, in the end, the solution of a system of uh, partial integral differential equation. And again, it gives us, in the end, it gives us optimal pricing letters and execution rates for all pairs, given the current levels of inventory in all pairs. And uh, we must also know that the market maker, I mean, institutional market maker, should be ready to quote any currency pair of a given portfolio of currencies. But not all of them are liquid and available for trading in the interbank market. This is a quite a special situation in mm -hmm. fact yeah and uh, can you explain what what it took to make uh, this uh, uh, this step forward uh, between the uh, currency pairs and the multi currency what was the difficulty there yeah i will direct to olivier definitely <laughs> <laughs> well it has not been straightforward i must confess uh, at first um we thought it would be very tough, very difficult, but uh, with Sasha and Philippe, we found a smart way to write the model that helped us a lot. It's, it's, it, it's a trick in some sense. If I can explain rapidly, uh, it's technical, so I should not maybe focus on this, but in a nutshell, uh, in the models, all the sizes, even for uh, crosses, for instance, uh, I mean, currency pairs not involving US dollars, we assume that sizes are normalized in some sense in USD. Okay, it's not natural at all, but it doesn't make a real difference in practice in terms of modeling. Uh, but for the math, it, it's uh, it, may, it makes a real difference. Uh, so it's somehow adding USD, I mean, normalizing or accounting in USD everywhere was uh, really the trick that makes it. Uh, we did it for the spread capture term uh, that we have in the equation. We did it for execution cost. Everything is in USD in some sense, and it made the model uh, tractable. That's yeah, the first. Maybe, Olivier, if I interrupt you for a second, I mean, this is actually a natural way the desk uh, manages the portfolio. I mean, we have an accounting in certain mm -hmm. currencies, and we, when we transferred it into the model, it became very, very natural. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It, 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 I agree with accounting, but the, the fact of converting the spread capture yeah. to USD is something tricky. It's uh, yeah, something you, you, yeah, you, you don't think about uh, naturally. And this is really, it's a tiny stuff. And of course, sometimes in model, you don't respect exactly reality. You don't, but here, this trick, okay, 
makes really little difference in terms of modeling, but when it comes to the equation, it's it's like magical. Suddenly everything is is easier. Okay, um, that was the first difficulty. So it's really a, a difficulty of like making a model tractable. Then came a, a second difficulty in some sense, goes, but a, a more classical one, because even though we could write the system of uh, partial differential equation, you're right, Sasha, you said partial integral differential equation. It's even partial differential, partial integral differential equation. So it's something you don't want to work on in some sense. And uh, it involved a lot of variable. It was impossible to solve that on the grid. And so this is what we call the curse of dimensionality. So somehow we are stuck, but I mean, there are several ways uh, to deal with the curse of dimensionality. Usually a classical one is PCA, principal uh, component analysis. So we can uh, decompose the risk in some sense and keep uh, a few principal components for the risk. This is not what we did. Uh, in, in some papers, usually when you have curse of dimensionality, sometimes you manage to uh, do something great anyway using uh, neural networks. When it's a control problem like the one we face, we use reinforcement learning. This is not what we did. In fact, what we did in our paper is a technique that has no name, but it's a, a reduction technique. It's a reduction technique towards a, a linear quadratic uh, control problem in some sense. It's a technique I developed with Philippe and two other young researchers a few years ago to derive the to derive closed form uh, approximate solution to some market making equation. This is when I was working on market making in the general setting, not in the FX case. Uh, and uh, this technique, uh, so it's uh, the reduction to a linear quadratic control uh, problem turns out uh, to, I mean, to be adapted or in fact it could be adapted to our FX uh, model and it worked very well. Okay. Uh, if I want to, if I want to, I won't deep dive into this, but uh, the thing is, when we use this technique, uh, we only need to solve what is called the Riccati, or it's in fact a Riccati-like equation. It's not exactly a Riccati, but a Riccati matrix differential equation. Uh, and it's not anymore a PDE or a partial integral differential equation. And the point is, then it becomes scale scalable for uh, practical purposes. So these were uh, the difficulties. It's a bit technical, but uh, I mean, of course it's technical. <laughs> of course it is. It wouldn't be yeah. the Catinet section otherwise. But of course, uh, anyone interested in the uh, in the details and uh, the the description uh, of the model can uh, consult the paper. Of course, uh, I just wanted to go back to one of the points that you mentioned at the beginning when you explained that you um, convert everything in USD. Um, when you do that for crosses, does it mean you're not technically dealing with crosses anymore once you convert them? No, not at all. It means for instance, that when we say when we model the sizes of the transactions, we say that imagine it's a I don't know EUR GBP, okay? We say that the size asked by the client is a size corresponding to one million USD, mm -hmm. okay? But whether whether it's one million USD or the equivalent in GBP doesn't really matter for modeling, for instance. But the fact that we encode, so to say, the sizes in USD made the thing work really well in terms of mathematics. So it's 
it sounds odd in some sense because it nobody would say I want to buy for one million USD of EUR GBP. That sounds a bit <laughs> ridiculous, but uh, in practice, uh, well, of course there is no parity. But if you say I want to buy the equivalent of one million USD of uh, EUR uh, GBP, uh, everybody understands what it means. Okay, and it simply means that the sizes do not evolve uh, with the uh, with the uh, with the exchange rates in some sense. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. we are in uh, at a very uh, short term. Uh, we, we solve short term problems in some sense. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a short term problem is is a key here because the change in the in exchange rate it, it will change a fraction of a percent. In fact, it changes in basis points. And what we are talking about is fees, which are also in basis points. So any uh, kind of um, model, which it will be a second order of smallness, uh, if, mm -hmm. if I can say that, essentially of difference. Therefore, I wouldn't say second even third. It's like a, <laughs> an order of magnitude, which is uh, so small <laughs> that really we don't care. There are other difficulties when it comes to modeling the real world. But in reality, what we have done, of course, we have tested. Uh, and, uh, first of all, the, the approximation that we had uh, against the exact solution of those partial integral differential equations where we could do that. And we can, of course, do it for, um, for a pair of uh, currency pairs. And this we have done under very different scenarios. Some of those scenarios being extreme asymmetry of the flow, for example. And uh, this is something that you may not even encounter in, in, in practice. Uh, we, we test it's like five-fold asymmetry of the flow. So there, there are five times more buyers than sellers. Of course, it can potentially be possible, but certainly it is very, very rare, particularly given expected uh, type of flow. And we found that on the under really, really extreme circumstances, this approximation would start deviating. We were really surprised and very happy to see this result because this approximation allows us to really to simplify the um, uh, system of equations uh, dramatically. And uh, then it becomes indeed scalable because you imagine what it means solving partial differential equations, the system. It means you cannot do it on a grid. I mean, it's just, just impossible to do it in advance. And, uh, but since it's partial differential, integral differential equation, you cannot solve it fast either. So you're basically stuck. And uh, without this approximation, you can't do anything. Yeah. And uh, so we have discussed uh, how you worked it out uh, on, on the theoretical side of things. But once you have uh, converted everything in USD, you have uh, resolved the curse of dimensionality. Uh, how does this model apply in practice? Um, you have to run all your tests, but do you know it can be uh, for a for a trader uh, usable uh, directly from? Uh, from yeah, let Sasha answer on this side. <laughs> yeah, we uh, truly think so, and but of course we must emphasize that every model has input parameters which are assumed uh, fixed, uh, as, as you know, or fixed or, or follow certain. Uh, uh, certain uh, processes, uh, theoretical processes, but in reality, uh, these parameters are dynamic. I'm, I'm talking, for example, about volatility or covariance matrix for that matter. Um, the desk will decide how to calibrate those parameters and 
which tools they may want to use to forecast uh, those parameters. In this case, each task will come with their own approaches. But the power of our model is that it links uh, the market conditions uh, from one side, uh, then franchise properties or the properties of the order flow that you receive from, from your client and risk measures. And we link those with optimal controls. And uh, importantly, those optimal controls can be evaluated very fast. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the uh, conclusions that you can draw from the use of uh, uh, of this model. Um, so you, you just said uh, uh, looking at the problem from, from a multi-currency perspective uh, gives you information about the crosses. So if you have a case in which uh, you're looking at the currency pair, uh, currency pairs that are po positively correlated, uh, what can you say about the cross of, uh, of those currencies? So the, the optimal quotes, and so of course the spread, then uh, they reflect a, a subtle balance between uh, volatility and liquidity. Even if you have no inventory, of course our optimal quotes also depend on the inventory of the of, of the portfolio. So there is no single answer somehow to you to your question. And uh, but I believe qualitatively that the spread of the cross should be lower than the sum of the leg spreads for. Uh, positively correlated currency pairs. It sounds intuitive. The question is more like by how much? Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, this is the typical question that our multi-currency model can address. Uh, but of course, I can't run uh, the model right now to give you a figure. So, but this is this is uh, this is typically the, the, the kind of question that our model answers quantitatively and not qualitatively. This is, I think, a difference also be between the this literature, this kind of paper, and the papers you can see in the in the economic literature on market making, because there is a literature on economic uh, an economic literature on market making. They, it's very interesting, but the 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 answer are more like qualitative. Uh, they give qualitative answers to questions, whereas here, I tend to believe that we provide quantitative uh, answers to questions. I don't know what you think, Sasha, but yeah, yeah, indeed, and uh, but I would say even. Uh... Qualitatively, it gives a very uh, good way to understand uh, why it is all happening. And essentially, it happens because uh, uh, if you have two correlated pairs, essentially, you can reduce the spread because in these uh, correlated pairs, you can unwind your risk slower. And uh, that, that's the main reason. If, if your risk is smaller, uh, you can unwind uh, slower, then you, you can shrink your spread because the cost of, of your uh, risk is lower. So as the correlation goes down, the spread tends to widen? As, as the correlation, uh, I mean, again, as Olivier mentioned, we, we, we can, uh, it, it will depend on the whole portfolio, uh, but uh, basically it, it can be said that under like normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the other important things you said at the beginning uh, is about attracting, uh, offsetting clients. So uh, what can you derive from uh, from the model you just presented uh, for a market maker? How, uh, what is the optimal way to uh, attract offsetting clients? Yeah, so I mean, the idea is basically the same. It's about uh, risk management. So let's look at our 
favorite examples, EURUSD, GBP, USD, and Euro GBP. And let's assume that we have a large uh, GBP USD position, but no uh, other uh, mm -hmm. pairs. And then the market maker would certainly want to skew GBP USD prices, as we would normally do to reduce the position. But he will also skew Euro GBP because it contains a GBP uh, lag. And uh, a trade in Euro GBP uh, will reduce GBP USD position, of course, but it will create Euro USD risk. Uh, so a skew in Euro GBP will be moderate. Why do we, we are happy to create Euro USD risk in this case? Because Euro USD is, of course, is more liquid. It will be much easier to get out of and uh, uh, with less cost. And importantly, market maker can also skew uh, his uh, most liquid asset. So Euro USD can be skewed because it's correlated mm -hmm. with the GBP USD. A trade in Euro uh, USD will actually not reduce GBP USD position, but it will essentially create a cross position Euro GBP, which um, is less risky and therefore it can be reduced more slowly and thus less costly. So it's all, it, it's all about correlations, but contrary to what happens uh, on other markets, the thing is you have the, the triangles. Uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's quite intricate. It's, uh, you, when you move something, it moves something else, which moves something else. And uh, I see that more as a fixed point in some sense. I don't know what you think, Sasha. But, uh, as a mathematician, I, I like to see it as a fixed point. And really, it's effects and it's specific. And... Uh, and so, yeah, you when you have even EURUSD, uh, GBPUSD, and uh, EURGBP, when you think of these three uh, currency pairs, uh, you have to think about it. I mean, I'm not I'm not a, an FX trader, so I, I, I'm not completely used to it. Even though I have a, I have worked it, I tend to I mean. To, to be honest, I tend to think all the time. I know Sasha is always thinking of currency pairs, but myself, I, I see, I don't see myself like this, but I think uh, of these problems as, you know, an old trader with some coins, uh, a drawer with some USD, a drawer with some GBP, and a drawer with euro. Of course, it's a bit limited because uh, I don't know what it means to be short. I don't. I know <laughs> what it means to have no coin, but, uh, but, but, uh, I, I reason like this, and of course, uh, we manage to have the same answers usually intuitively. <laughs> okay. But uh, you know, I'm I'm more like a, an old merchant, so to say, of the uh, 16th or 17th century uh, when I think about these uh, <laughs> things. Well, let's see if that perspective helps with the the next uh, question about hedging. So, how should uh, a portfolio be optimally hedged when uh, trading platforms exist for direct pairs and some crosses? Yeah. So basically, this extends our uh, previous answer. So, if if you have this GBP large GBP position GBP USD, then you can uh, hedge it directly, um, uh, or you can hedge it through the cross or through um, Euro USD. Essentially, what we are doing by this action, we are using this uh, triangle that Olivia mentioned. We are increasing a position in our uh, more liquid um, uh, correlated currency pair. And uh, to balance risk, 
and to then unwind more slowly. Uh, there is a potentially extra cost, uh, cost involved because um, we have to trade in and trade out, right? No, but this cost is justified by risk reduction. So when the risk in the book is uh, very large, more and more different liquidity uh, pathways uh, may become cost effective. I see, I see. And uh, well, as we, we said repeatedly uh, throughout this, uh, this podcast, uh, it all comes down to, to risk management and the uh, object, uh, the objective of this is, uh, is that. So with the second paper that you publish on the multi-currency perspective, uh, what did you achieve more compared to uh, the previous uh, approach? What differences do you see? What improvement do you see in the risk management that you can perform using this model? Well, improvement, I think, is the word, because uh, uh, when you use a portfolio level approach, it allows you or it allows the market maker to, I'm not a market maker, but I feel like a market maker in this interview. Um, it allows the market maker to manage risk better. So uh, I think it's true for any multi-currency model, because there are some form of hedging, natural hedging, natural netting, uh, at least statistical netting. Uh, uh, I think the consequence uh, for, for the clients of a market maker using a portfolio level model should it should it should experience better prices, uh, less market footprint also because uh, there is less externalization. We talked about this uh, internalization versus externalization dilemma. Uh, I think one of the point with going multi-currency that because you have better risk management, you have more internalization. Okay, so less footprint for uh, the clients of the dealers. Uh, maybe also the market maker will be able to offer larger sizes. Um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah yes, indeed. Uh, a, a larger size is one thing, because if, if you risk manage better, uh, apparently you can take larger sizes. And, and I would say why, um, say, less footprint would be interesting uh, for the client, you say, like, um, less market footprints and we say it's to the benefit of the client because we are talking the clients who transfer risk to us right essentially you, you transfer the risk and forget about it no nobody forgets about it because clients are, are actually look at the footprint of their trade so if they trade with the market maker who immediately externalizes the whole flow it will be very visible uh, and uh, they don't like uh, of course as nobody does uh, like these uh, signatures uh, visible um, Therefore, uh, the ability to risk manage uh, properly by the institution is uh, very much welcome uh, by, by the clients. And I would say uh, another command, practitioners certainly know about uh, correlations and certainly know uh, how to handle multiple currency pairs. But what we offer in order to manage, say, a very large uh, multi-currency portfolio and at very high frequencies and uh, continuously satisfying client liquidity requirements. And uh, I would say it's ever increasing sizes mm. uh, because the sizes that are currently being handled are comparable to current visible uh, liquidity in the interbank. Therefore, a robust uh, electronic risk management uh, solution is required. Very interesting, very interesting. Now I would like to ask you about your collaboration. Obviously, uh, you three are work at the moment for uh, three different institutions. Uh, so may I ask how you started collaborating on this uh, years ago, I suspect? Uh, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a, thank you for this question. I think it's important to say something. Uh, I think uh, successful collaborations between academics and practitioners are not that numerous. Uh, so it's interesting, I think, to give you a bit of context. Uh, so I will start, well, you said a few years ago, because I think we met in 2019 or something, uh, yeah, Sasha. Exactly. But yeah. the story is a bit longer that, than this. Uh, I, more than 10 years ago, I think 11, uh, I participated in the, uh, I, I was a young researcher at that time, uh, not to say I'm really old now, but uh, I, I was really young and I participated in the creation of a, what we call a research initiative. It was financed by HSBC France. So uh, it was in Paris and it was something under the aegis of an institute called Institut Louis Bachelier or Louis Bachelier Institute from the, uh, uh, you know, the famous Louis Bachelier that anybody, everybody knows in, uh, in quantitative finance. Or at least must know. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so this initiative was uh, focusing, was devoted to uh, equity topics at the very beginning. And then a few years ago, um, I didn't know Sasha, but Sasha was aware of that initiative. And of course he was at HSBC in London, uh, and he suggested to uh, extending the research uh, initiative, initiative to FX. I think we had some uh, discussion, uh, and uh, but it was just an idea at the beginning. But a bit later, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure of this. It's in it's in 2019. Yeah, exactly. uh, HSBC hosted in 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 London uh, a market microstructure conference, which is called CFM Imperial. It's it's organized by uh, Capital Fund Management CFM mm -hmm. and um, Imperial College, and uh, it was hosted that year uh, at HSBC in London. So we could meet with Sasha, and uh, we discussed the topic in more detail. And this was the, the real start of our collaboration. Uh, I've been working with a few practitioners on a variety of topics, and I think this research collaboration is really a good example of what works well. It's uh, basically we found formulations which are practically relevant and academic challenging. Uh, it's attractive to me. It's a it's a win-win collaboration. I think it's very good. Uh, it, it's, and maybe uh, you mentioned Philippe as well. Well, of course, I was going to mention Philippe because you said. Uh, the three of us, and uh, well, I should thank Philippe for, for what he for what he did. Uh, he is the third quarter of the the two papers, and I have been working with Philippe uh, quite a lot for a, a very simple reason. He was my uh, PhD student. Okay, so he did his PhD under my uh, supervision. By the way, almost at the same time as uh, Julia Monziuk, who received a, a prize from Risk. It's, uh, Indeed. Yeah, rising star. Called, Rising Star, Rising Star award from, from indeed, yeah, from, from from last year or two years ago. I don't remember yeah, last year. Ago, I, I believe two, two years ago. Yeah, uh, two years ago. Thank and uh, but the the topic of uh, the topic of uh, going back to Philip, the topic of Philip was uh, linked to optimal execution and market making. So when Sasha came to talk about FX market making, it was really in line with uh, his interest and the general direction of his research. Uh, so we did this, and uh, now Philippe is a—he uh, defended his, his PhD, has been hired as an assistant professor at uh, Dauphine University, Paris Dauphine, as you mentioned. And guess what? 
he continues to work on market making because the, the topic is, uh, is very interesting. Actually, I have a question exactly on this. Um, uh, Olivier, uh, this is probably more for you, but uh, what can you tell us about the research in, uh, uh, in effects market in academia? Uh, do you think it has been generally overlooked compared to equity and fixed income? Well, the, the, the academic literature on optimal market making, I mean, it had, before what we did, it was mainly focused on the models which are more relevant for bonds, stocks, even there are some papers about equity derivatives. Uh, and I don't really understand why, but because they, I mean, the size of the DFX market is huge. Mm. Uh, th there should be more paper about uh, FX market making, but also about FX problems in general. Uh, it, it has nothing to do specifically with, with market making. It's a general problem. I do not have a, a sound theory to explain this. It may well be due to historical reasons or maybe access to data, because uh, as, as we said at the very, I think Sasha said it at the very beginning, uh, the, the FX market is at the same time OTC uh, and there is an internal market. So as for any OTC market, it's complicated for, uh, people in academia to get data. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a reason. Maybe it's also the concentration of uh, the FX markets to a few places. I mean, in almost every country you have a stock market, but uh, it's more concentrated when it comes to FX. You have like huge places like uh, Sasha can enumerate, enumerate them maybe, but uh, London, New York, Singapore, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, so Tokyo, it's far more concentrated. So maybe it's because I'm French, but I, I don't see a lot of French uh, of French uh, researchers working in France. It's not only about being French, it's about being French and working in France, working on effects. So, but I, I believe that it should attract more research for sure. And it's, a, it's an interesting topic. But once again, it has really nothing to do with market making. It's, it's, it's general mm -hmm. for FX. For FX. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, to conclude, I'd like to ask you what's next. Uh, so you've been working on uh, these two papers. Uh, the natural question is, will this become a trilogy? Yeah. Uh, are you working on, the, uh, on a further extension? And if so, what, what aspects are you working on? Yeah, we certainly hope so. <laughs> we have <laughs> <laughs> mentioned them. Dynamic adjustment of state variables so this is a very important topic, how to do it uh, optimally. There's uh, also been a lot of um, activity recently related to adverse selection, uh, which is sometimes called the curse of a market maker, because we had curse of depersonality. This is a curse <laughs> of market making is adverse selection. Yeah, and uh, despite uh, considerable progress, I must say that the um, uh, fully satisfactory risk uh, management solution is yet uh, to be obtained in our opinion. And of course, integration of OTC and LOB market making is another interesting topic. Probably Olivier could uh, add uh, your point of view. Yeah, I think well, they, they, they are, well, in, the, in the academic literature, there are papers uh, on, on LOB market making, but they're really only for LOB market making, like mixing everything, like we did for mixing internalization and externalization would be good. 
regarding the trilogy, uh, of course, it would be a, a real pleasure to collaborate with uh, Sasha. Uh, of course, with Philippe. Philippe is working with me on, on, on many projects on the new paper. And uh, you mentioned adverse election. I think really information asymmetries, uh, yeah, indeed. market impact yeah. and stuff like this. Uh, they are on the agenda of research, and uh, every time we uh, present our papers, uh, or every time I talk about market making in conferences, in seminars, I get questions uh, on uh, on information asymmetries, adverse selection, the winner's curse. It, it's something general. It's uh, every time you participate to an auction, okay, even like uh, outside of finance, if you are the best bidder, then it means uh, you are the best bidder. So you pay too much in some sense. So uh, this is the winner's curse. And of course, uh, it has to do with uh, information asymmetries with adverse selection. Uh, so of course, we need the trilogy. And uh, we hope that there, if there is a third paper, there will be a new podcast. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It sounds actually from uh, from what you just said, they might be the series might be longer than just a trilogy. We'll we'll wait and see. We'll wait and yeah, see. Uh, Sasha, Olivier, it's been great to have you as guests. Uh, great talking to you. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Mara. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And thanks everybody for listening.